open your Bibles to Philippians chapter 1. Philippians chapter 1 as we get into the second study of the, the, the book of Philippians. And this morning we're going to look at verses 9, 10, and 11. Three verses, but has a lot to say to us. It's Paul and his prayers. Paul and his prayers. Paul wanted the believers that were under his care to grow spiritually. And that's what we're to do as Christians. We're to grow spiritually. And you could see that that was his desire for his, those under his care to grow uh, spiritually. You could see it in his preaching, his teaching, and his writing, but especially in his prayer life. Let's begin now in chapter 1, verse 9, and see what it says there. Paul says, And this I pray, and here's what he's praying for, that your love may abound still more and more in knowledge and in all discernment. The greatest passage ever written about love is 1 Corinthians chapter 13, and it's called the love chapter because it speaks and it defines and describes what love is. It's probably the most written about subject, the most interesting subject on earth and in heaven. Love will make people, as we've heard, do the strangest things. Look at John 3, 16. For God so loved the world that he gave. Paul's prayer was for the Philippians' love for other believers to abound. And that means to superabound. It means to be in excess. But that love should be more than a loving mood than a feeling, than an emotion, than it, that those things are a part of true love. But that's not what they are alone. Paul said that, his, that, that he wanted the, the, the Christian's love to abound in knowledge and all discernment. In other words, love should be knowledgeable and it should be discerning. Having genuine spiritual knowledge of God and a deep understanding of his ways. Because that enables Christians to love God and to love others more and more. So it's clear that agape love is a, again, it's an it's a unconditional love. It's a sacrificial love. It's a giving love. It's clear that agape love is not based on the emotional or the sentimental. Even less likely, physical attraction. But again, that doesn't mean that Christian love is not without feeling or sentiment. It's expected that believers' love for others, even for those who don't love in return, will produce a loving affection. Paul's love for fellow Christians, especially those like the Philippians, who loved him and cared for him so much, was very much emotional. But again, that emotional attraction wasn't why they loved him, or why he loved them, I should say. He also chose to love the immature, bickering, and the ungrateful believers in Corinth. And the Philippians were already showing love for Paul and each other. And that's why Paul could say he wanted their love now to increase even more. And scripture tells us that all genuine Christians possess godly love. Did you hear that? All genuine Christians possess godly love. Because Paul said, we know how dearly God loves us because he has given us the Holy Spirit to fill our hearts with his love. Romans 5.5. 5. 
Love for fellow Christians is a sure sign that they're saved. Let me say that again. Love for fellow Christians is a sure sign that they are saved. Jesus said, your love for one another, notice, your love for one another will prove to the world that you're my disciples. It is a sign that you're saved. John wrote this. If we love our Christian brothers and sisters, it proves that we have passed from life to death, uh, from death to eternal life. But a person who has no love is still dead. If someone says, I love God, but hates a Christian brother or sister, that person is a liar. Because if we don't love people we can see, how can we love God whom we have not seen? You see, genuine love, biblical love, is predetermined. It's predetermined. It means I, I shouldn't have to think about it. I do it. It's automatic. It's not based on feelings. And love, for the most part, man, we base it on feelings. Love, biblical love, is a conscious, intentional choice. It's what I will to do. It's what I'm going to do. It's to show kindness and generosity by choice. Not because the person is lovable, not because they're nice, not because they've been nice to me and I like them. No, it has nothing to do with them. It has everything to do with me. It's an, because it's an obedience to what God has commanded. Believers willingly choose to show the love of God that he's placed in them. And that's hard to do. And they do it whether others are lovable or not. They do it whether others respond to them or not. Believers unselfishly love others because that's the way God loves. And because that's how he commands us to love. Jesus said in Matthew 5, 43-48, he says, Love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. He says, In that way you will be acting as true children of your Father in heaven. If you love only those, he says, If you love only those who love you, that reward, you know, what, uh, what reward is there for that? He says, even corrupt tax collectors do as much. If you are kind only to your friends, how are you different from anybody else? Even pagans, that is the non-believers, do that. But you are to be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. By obeying the Lord's commands to love one another, even as I have loved you, again, is, again it's, an, it's an obedient behavior that, that God asks us to do. It says believers, because, because when you do that, when you love one another as God have loved you, Jesus, you become imitators of God. This is the determined, humble, selfless, self-giving, sacrificial love that's needed in the church today. But it's influenced way too much by the world's corrupt idea of love. People don't care that much about charitableness today or selfless love. The world's idea of love is one that's really all about themselves. It's all about self. Even when they do things that are supposed to help others. Because you see, it makes them feel good. Or they look good in front of, the, of other people. Nobody will ever love us the way God loves us. And Calvary proved that. The cross proved that. But 
God's love is vast and it's eternal. It's limitless. There's no boundaries in the love of God. It never defiles His holiness. His love never acts in contradiction with His omniscient wisdom. And it never ignores His own righteous laws. Now, because God is love and He wants all men to be saved and go to heaven, that doesn't mean there's no hell. And the fact that hell exists doesn't mean that God stops loving those who are there. Sin breaks God's laws. And it breaks God's heart. Hell was not created for man. Hell was created for Satan and his demons. But you see, if you choose to reject the love of God, the offer of salvation, the only way of forgiveness of sins then what you've done is you've chosen to make hell your eternal resting place. Your place of You've chosen to go there. You can never say God sends anybody to hell because he doesn't. He's made a way so that you don't go to hell through his son. But by not choosing Jesus, you've judged yourself. By rejecting Christ, you've chosen hell as your eternal resting place of judgment. Look at verse 10 now. So, okay, in verse 9, Paul says, This I pray, that your, that your love may uh, still abound more and more. Notice he wanted his, their love to grow in knowledge and discernment. Now, in verse 10, he's saying, he is saying, I pray that you may approve the things that are excellent, that you may be sincere and without offense till the day of Christ. So, in verse 10, Paul is saying, Hey, I'm praying for you to be sound in your doctrine of Jesus Christ. Doctrine, your word of God, the word of God. The word approve here in verse 10 means to assay, to examine, to test, and it refers to testing metals for its purity. So Paul's thinking is that we should carefully examine things and approve of them that o- that only if they pass the test. And again, we are to examine things that are different so that we can see if they pass the test. When it comes to the Word of God, man, when it comes to the Bible, when it comes to doctrine, you know, it's among things that differ. There's a lot of people that that have different doctrine, and it's not sound. Paul was aware of the fact of the doctrinal differences, and he knew about them in the church of Colossae, and he recognized their serious twisted doctrine in that church, and he exposed exposed them in his letter to the Christians there in Colossae. Paul's letter to the Colossians was written about the same time that this letter was written to the Philippians. We read in Romans 16 and 17, it says, Watch out for people. The word means mark them. Mark those, he said, who cause divisions and upset people's faith by teaching things contrary to what you have been taught. Stay away from them. That's how serious it is. Mark those whose doctrine is different, who cause divisions and upset people's faith. And he says, stay away from them. Today, there's a lot of cults in the world. And and, and the cults, they have their Christs. But you see, they're to be singled out from the Lord Jesus Christ. We can and we must love people whose doctrine is different from us. But you know what? That doesn't mean that we approve of what they believe. That doesn't mean we approve of what they say or do. Paul says here in verse 10, I want you to recognize things that are different. 
Not just the good and the bad. <clears throat> Not just right and wrong, true and false. He says, I also want you to know the difference between good and the best. Because God wants the best for us. 1 John 4, 1 through 3 says, Dear friends, do not believe everyone who claims to speak by the Spirit. You must test the Spirit to see if the Spirit they have comes from God. Is it a godly spirit or is it a strange spirit? Is it a demonic spirit? Everything that's, that's said in the name of Jesus or under the guise of religion is not true and holy. But many times it's satanic, it's deceptive, and it's evil. But you see, how are we going to know if we don't know the doctrine of Scripture? That's the importance of knowing God's Word. Good people have a tendency to believe others just because they look at others the way they look at themselves. And they can't imagine that evil is behind what they're saying and doing. And a lot of times, when you first become a Christian, and I know it was with me, I turn on the Christian uh, TV station and I'd see all these guys teaching and preaching and because it was on a Christian radio uh, TV station, I thought all, a lot of these guys were, were, were good guys as far as you know, doctrine and, and, and what they meant. Now, and I watched a program one day and as I was growing in the Lord and reading scripture and I was watching a program one day and I saw this teacher say, you know what, a lot of people are afraid of death. Okay, that made sense. He said, but you know, I don't know why. He says, I'm going to die when I want to die. That went, hmm. That really struck a chord with me. And I go, and that raised a red flag. Well, you know, God's the one who's in charge. And just my common sense and a holy God and a great God. I mean, I don't get to pick and choose. Make a long story short. Down the road, I heard he was one of those health, wealth, and prosperity teachers. Uh, positive confession. If you say it, it's going to happen. Don't say anything negative because it's going to happen. That's why I said, well, you know, I'm going to die when I want to die. Well, found out again, he was, you know, false doctrine. He's a false teacher. And that's the importance of knowing the word of God. That's how you know. That's how you will recognize false doctrine when you hear it. You'll know what's right and what's wrong. St. John, uh, Gospel of John, John said, we shouldn't be gullible. He said, because there's a lot of false prophets out there. There's a lot of false prophets in society, and we shouldn't believe everything that we hear, and, and, and even from religious people. John said, examine the spirits. Test the spirits. Because testing them is important, it's necessary. It's very important. It's a basic thing to learn if they're true or false. A person that's promoting a false religion will object to being examined. They're not going to want you to test them. They're not going to want you to examine them. But a true religious person, they'll welcome the examination. Yeah, fine. Let's check it out. I don't care. Ask me questions. I'm fine. Because they are not hiding anything. They're not being deceiving. The world is filled. It's full of evil. Religious salesmen trying to sell their product. You see them on TV. You see it in an evangelist, healers. Musicians with their so-called Christian worship, health, wealth, and prosperity gospel, seeker-friendly programs, they, filling the church. They're all under the category of false prophets because they deceive, they defile, and they weaken and even destroy many people's faith. That's why it's wise to test. It's, it's wisdom to test and to examine religious movements and the men behind them. 
so that you're not drawn into them, so that you're not deceived by them and you're not ruined by them like a lot of innocent people have been. The great statement of the faith that that sets uh, Christians apart uh, from others is Jesus Christ is God come in the flesh. John, uh, 1 John 4, 2. The great statement of the faith that sets a Christian apart from others is this. Jesus Christ is God come in the flesh. Not all preachers and teachers who claim to be Christian are really Christians in their belief. If they confess that Jesus Christ has come, is God come in the flesh, then they belong to the true faith. But if they deny Christ, then they belong to Antichrist. You see, they're in and of the world. And they're not like true believers who have called out of the, been called out of the world. When they speak, the world, which are unsaved people, hears them and believes them. Because they have nothing to go on. But the unsaved world can never understand a true Christian because a Christian speaks under the direction of the Holy Spirit of truth. Only the Spirit can understand the things of the Spirit because he's the author of the Word of God. Paul said they're spiritually discerned. That's the only way you can understand the things of the Spirit. You must be spiritually discerned. You must have the Spirit. A false teacher speaks under the influence of the spirit of error, which is the spirit of Antichrist. To confess that Jesus Christ is God come in the flesh involves a lot more than just identifying with Christ. The demons did this in Mark 1.24. They said, we believe in Jesus. We know who he is. But that didn't save them. A lot of people say, oh, I know, I know Jesus. I believe in Jesus. You know, I've read the Bible. But that doesn't save them. True confession involves personal faith in Jesus Christ in who he is and what he's done for us. Confession is not just saying, hey, I believe in Jesus. It's not reciting some statement of belief or, or, or some statement of faith. It's a personal, again, it's a personal witness from your heart of what Jesus Christ has done for you. And if you've trusted in Jesus Christ and you've confessed your faith in him, you have eternal life. And if you can't honestly make this confession, then you don't have eternal life. And that's a very serious thing. The British evangelist, George, George Whitfield, said this. He was talking to a man about his soul. And he asked the man, sir, what do you believe? He replied, well, I believe what my church believes. Well, what does your church believe? He said, the same thing I believe. And, well, what do, you both, what, what do both of you believe? The preacher asked, uh, Whitfield asked him, and he said, we both believe the same thing. That was the only reply the evangelist could get out of this man. And, you know, and I've heard that many times. Well, you know, this is what I believe. Well, well, why? Well, this is what I've been taught, and this is what my church teaches. You better know what the Word of God teaches. Because a man is not saved by declaring or agreeing to a church creed. A man or woman is saved by trusting in Jesus Christ, and as Peter said in 1 Peter 2, 9, showing forth the praises of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. In other other words, bearing witness to his faith in Christ. That's the evidence. 
And false teachers will often, often say, we worship the Father just like you do. We believe in God the Father just like you do. Even though we disagree with you about Jesus Christ. That's a serious problem. Because they're not at all like us. See, to deny the Son means that you deny the Father also. You can never, never separate the Father and the Son because both are one God. Jesus said in John 10, 30, I and my Father are one. And Jesus also makes it clear that true believers honor both the Father and the Son. Listen to what Jesus said in John 5, 23. He said, all should honor the Son just as they honor the Father. He who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. If you say you worship one God, but you leave Jesus Christ out of your worship, you're not worshiping as a true believer, as a true Christian. And it's eternally important that you stay with the truth of God's word. Because see, if you don't have the Father, you don't have the Son. And if you don't have the Son, you don't have the Father. You're not saved. If a religious leader comes along with something new, hey, first of all, it's not really something new. It, it, you know, it, it's something that contradicts uh, what Christians you know, have heard from the beginning. It's not to be trusted. There's always people trying to come out and say, hey, you know, hey, the, the God's revealed something new to me, or you know, uh, there's a prophet in our church, and, and, and there's something new that's been revealed to him, and come here because you know, we, have the in li- the, the, we have the insight, and we have the, uh, we, we, we've got the light, and, and you know what? It's not new. If it contradicts the Bible, it's not new. Solomon said, there's nothing, there hasn't been anything new from the beginning. It's all out there. Again, Ecclesiastes 1.10, is there anything of which it may be said, see, this is new? It has already been in ancient times before us. John said, test the spirits whether they are of God. Because you will be led astray by the spirit of Antichrist. No matter what false teachers might promise you, you have the sure promise of eternal life in Jesus Christ. You need Jesus and. I'm sorry, you don't need Jesus and. It's Jesus, period. You don't need anything more than Jesus Christ. It's Jesus, period. Jesus Jesus said on the cross, it is finished. It's finished. I'm all that you need. Even Paul was examined by the Bereans who checked his message with the scriptures and that's what we need to do. That's what all believers need to do is check the word of God that's being preached, check the preacher out by checking the scriptures. It says in Acts 17, 11, the Bereans, it says, receive the word with all readiness and search the scriptures daily to find out whether these things were so. We need to know. We need to check them out if we have any doubt. The Bereans carefully examined the evidence and concluded that Paul's gospels, the gospel that he preached, it was the truth and it was the fulfillment of the Old Testament scriptures, the Old Testament promises. Those who honestly search the scriptures will always come out with the same conclusion. It's God's word. 
Most people who reject the gospel don't know much about the scriptures. And some of the Bible's harshest critics over the centuries have shown a surprising ignorance of its teachings. You know, there's times when I've witnessed to people and, and, you know, and, and we've gotten into a conversation about some topic and the person will give me a really dumb answer. And I ask them, well, how long did it take you to study to find that answer? Well, I really never, I, you know, I, and then they start mumbling and hemming and hawing. Again, well, you, they, they gave such a silly answer, but they, they, they don't read, they haven't read, they haven't studied. And again, people there, yeah, you know, uh, I read the Bible and, and, or, or God talks to me, but I don't read the Bible. Well, how can God talk to you if you don't read the Bible? He speaks to you through the word of God. The most important duty in evangelism is to show the truth of Christianity from the scriptures. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 2, 4, he said, and my message and my preaching was very plain. That is very simple. Rather than using clever and persuasive speeches, he said, I relied only on the power of the Holy Spirit. How can a Christian know God's word well enough to use it effectively? Well, the first requirement is studying the Bible. Studying the Bible. And the confession of sin. If we have sin, we're going to have a problem. We're going to have a, a problem. So the first requirement for studying the Bible is confessing sin. Peter said in 1 Peter 2, 1 and 2, Therefore, notice, putting aside all malice and all guile and hypocrisy and envy and all slander like newborn babes, long for the, uh, the pure milk of the word, that by it you may grow in respect to salvation. You see, it's impossible to study the Bible and get anything out of Scripture with a polluted mind and an impure heart. So again, the, the first requirement for studying the Bible is confessing our sin. We have to make sure that, you know, we've confessed it. It's been forgiven and, and, and gone. Next, your Bible study must be diligent. Diligent. Paul commanded Timothy in 2 Timothy 2.15, Be diligent to present yourself approved to God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed handling accurately the word of truth. Lazy unplanned, careless Bible study will not produce a Christian who's mighty in scriptures. Like Apollos was. He was mighty in the scriptures. And then next. Believers have to be committed to living the truths that they learn. That's the whole purpose for, write, for, for, for reading the scriptures. We learn them, and then we live them. We apply them to our lives. And James strongly urged Christians, in James 1.22, he said, prove yourselves to be doers of the word of God and not hearers only, because you're deceiving yourselves. Be doers of the word and not hearers only. The ultimate goal of all Bible study is, is not to increase your knowledge. It's not to just increase your knowledge, but it's to increase your holiness and Christ-likeness. Reading the Word of God, learning the Word of God is not just for information. It's for transformation. It's to tra cha you know, uh, transform your mind and your heart. Now in verse 10, look at verse 10. 
Paul is saying, now, I pray that you may approve the things that are excellent, that you may be sincere and without offense till the day of Christ. So here is Paul's latest prayer. In the next prayer in verse 10, he says, I want you to understand what really matters here so that you may live pure and blameless lives until the day of Christ. Now, the day of Christ refers to the rapture of the church. When the Lord Jesus comes and takes his bride to be with him for all eternity. Right after we've been raptured to heaven, we'll be called before the judgment seat. The judgment seat of Christ. Where everything that we did here on earth is going to be tested. Now that's, that's not going to be a comfortable time. Paul wanted the Philippians to keep the day of judgment in mind because he didn't want any wood, hay, or stubble thrown in with the gold, silver, and the precious stones of their Christian life. And like I said, think about it. Standing before the judgment seat of Christ, that's going to be a serious event. Very serious. And and, I, and I think about that, and there I am standing before the Lord. And I'm wondering, what's going to happen? What's he going to say? What's he going to show me? And the Bible says that some will be saved even as by the fire, basically by the skin of their teeth. Saved by the fire. And and all all these works are going to be thrown into the fire at the judgment seat of Christ. And many will see that they're wasted lives. They'll see their wasted lives that couldn't stand the test. They couldn't stand the test. They're going to go up and smoke. Their wasted lives are going to go up and smoke. All the things that they did. Why we did it. What the motivation was for doing it. It's all going to be tested. It's all going to come out. That's why we need to be so right on with the Lord because we're, we're not going to hide anything from God. The Bible does not describe the judgment seat of Christ to be a joyous occasion. Because it's going to be a time of searching. Paul said in 2 Corinthians 5.10, he says that each one may receive the things done in the body, notice, according to what he has done, whether good or bad. You see, the quality of what we've done as as a Christian, the quality of our service, it's going to be exposed. And our motives are going to be exposed. That is, what moved us, what drove us, what inspired us to, you know, what, from, you know Joe, why, why did you become a pastor? And that's going, to be, that's going to come out in the fire. Was it because you wanted to be up front? Was it because you wanted to do it? You know, all, all, the, all the motivation, all the, the, the thoughts behind it. Or was it because you truly wanted to preach the word of God? It's all going to come out in the fire. Why did you want to be a, 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 an usher? Why did you want to be a, a, a Sunday school teacher? Why did you want to be a worship leader? Why did, you be, why did you want to do all the things? Why did you want to, you know, why did you want to serve me in whatever capacity you're serving? It'll all be made known. 
So again, if, uh, we have to you know, be honest and true before the Lord. We need to examine ourselves because we're not going to hide it from God and he's going to bring it out and he's going he's to show us why we did the things that we did. The quality of us, our service. What quality was it? Was it poor? Was it good? What was your reason for doing it? Was it for self? Was it for recognition? It's also going to be a place of reckoning where we give an account of our ministries. Were we faithful to the ministries that we, were, we, that we say we were called to? Were we there when we needed to be there? Did we do what we were asked to do? Because we're going to give an account. If we've been faithful, then, 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 that, then it's going to be a place of reward and recognition. But it says, if anyone's work is burned, he will suffer loss. Now, verse 11. Paul is now praying, he says, praying that you be being filled with the fruits of the Spirit, I'm sorry, the fruits of righteousness, which are by Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Paul says, and this, I also prayed for the Philippians. Paul prayed that the believers would be filled with the fruits of righteousness. Godly love produces spiritual fruit. And spiritual fruit produces integrity, which produces good works. The fruits of righteousness is a good life. Are we living a righteous life, a good life? The word righteousness here refers to doing what's right. Are we doing what's right? Today people ask, hey, am I doing the right thing? Hey, is it popular? Does it make me feel good? But the Christian has to ask themselves, is it right? Is it right? A Christian who's filled with the fruits of righteousness, as Paul's talking about in verse 11, is good and does what's right. A Christian who's filled with the fruits of righteousness is good and does what's right. Every day, unsaved people often live somewhat good lives. And, you know, just on the human level, they're just, you know, good people that do good things. They may pay, pay their bills on time. You know, they may give to charity. They may help their neighbor. You know, they, they may, you know, fight for good causes, stand for their beliefs. They help each other, keep their promises, obey the law, may even go to church. But there's a huge difference between the morality of a good but unsaved person and the goodness of a child of God. And the difference is in how they do what they do and why they do what they do. In other words, how I did it and why I did it. So the superiority of Christian goodness isn't a matter of quantity, but of kind. A Christian's righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, Jesus said. It's not quantity, it's quality. It's not how much I do, but it's why I do it and and the quality of of what I'm doing. The goodness that's the character of true Christianity differs in how from goodness goodness of the unsaved man. 
Paul made the difference very clear when he said that the fruits of righteousness are, are by Jesus Christ. The fruits of righteousness are by Jesus Christ, or are they by my own doing? Am I, doing, am I, am I carrying out my own righteousness? Am I doing it for my own righteousness? Do I feel like I'm righteous because I'm doing certain things? Or am I doing the things that, that are righteousness by Jesus Christ? The good man of this world is only somewhat good. And his goodness is often spoiled by a poor attitude. Or incompleteness doesn't do it all. Or by some other hindering factor. But the goodness of Jesus was absolute, no doubt about it. The goodness of Jesus never changed. The goodness of Jesus never failed. The goodness of Jesus, it always, he always came through. And it was never showy. He, was, he never showed off. He didn't do it for attention. It was never found to be defective. It was never fake. Peter spent years in the intimate company of Jesus Christ. Peter watched Jesus under all kinds of different circumstances. And this is what, Jesus, and this is what Peter said about Christ's life. Jesus said that his whole life, he went about doing good in Acts 10, 38. Mark said he has done all things well in Mark 7, 37. And Pilate, even a heathen governor, he said this in John 19 and 14. He said, Behold, I am bringing Jesus out to you that you may know that I find no fault in him. And you know what? Neither will you. And neither can you. There's no fault that you can find in Jesus Christ. He does all things well. God himself said, the Father said, looking at the life of Christ from the position of absolute perfection, he said, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. The wisdom of the Christian gospel lies in the fact that this same Jesus, by his Holy Spirit, through the miracle of the new birth, now lives in every single believer. So the how... The how of our goodness is not our own effort to copy his life, but it's his life in us. We live his life. The absolute goodness of the Lord Jesus is totally impossible by a Christian apart from the supernatural. Apart from Jesus Christ, we can do nothing, he said. Christian goodness is the result of a spirit-filled life, a Holy Spirit-filled life, a life that's available to all of us in Christ. But you know what? It's available to all of us, but it's seldom taken hold of. The goodness that's the characteristic of true Christianity, it differs in why from the goodness of the unsaved man. Paul said there are not, there's none good. There's none good but one, and that's Christ. The goodness of the Christian is to the glory and the praise of God. And that's why we do it. 
We're doing it for the praise and the glory of God. Paul said, whatever we do, eat, drink, sleep, whatever we do, let it be to the glory of God. Do all for the glory of God. The Christian does good works not to get men's applause, not to get men's attention, not to get men's approval, not just to follow uh, his conscience. He does it. His motivation is the glory and the praise of God. I do what I do to give praise and glory to God because of what he's done for me. When you realize and you, and, you, and you focus on what God has done for me in my past life and where he's taken me, man, there's nobody that could have done that. And you know what? When you realize the depth of what he's done, you can't help but be thankful. Lord, what can I do for you? You want to serve him in some capacity because of what he's done for you. The testimony of Jesus Christ was this, I always do those things that please him, speaking of his father. He said, I always do, do those things that please my father. That should be our testimony. What we do is because we, what we do because we want to please the father. The Lord Jesus could say to his father, I have glorified you on the earth. God's name is also glorified when Christians do the things that reflect his character. Paul said we're to be imitators of Christ. Christ's name is insulted when those who say they're saved do things that are immoral, inconsiderate, or unkind. We give a bad testimony. So then in verses 9 through 11, as we close, verses 9 through 11 gives us insight into Paul's uh, prayer. Paul's prayers for his brothers and his sisters in Christ, his fellow believers. Paul turned his jail cell into a sanctuary. Think about that. And when Paul prayed in prison, they heard, the, pray, the, the prisoners heard. The prison walls were, were alive with prayer, the sound of his prayers. Paul went boldly to the throne of grace, and he prayed. He prayed, God, may your people be exceptional. May they be exceptional in their devotion to you, Lord. May they be sound in their doctrine of Christ and may they be sincere in the manifestation of Jesus in this life. And that's what verses 9 and 11 are saying. May you and I be exceptional in our devotion to Jesus. May we be, may we be sound in doctrine, in the word of God. And may we be sincere in the fruits of righteousness, that is, in the manifestation of Jesus Christ in our life to this world. Father, we thank you so much for this wonderful prayer, Father. And Lord, may we focus on that prayer, God. Lord, may we have the same desire. God, may our, may our devotion be exceptional, Lord. May it be above all else. Father, may it be above the world. May we give Jesus a, 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 an undying 
devotion, God. Lord, may we be solid Bible students, God. Lord, may we know your word effectively, that we can use it effectively, Lord. And Father, may our life be a righteous testimony to a dark and immoral world, Lord. May the fruits of righteousness be seen in our life, God, because it's a, pro a produce of the Holy Spirit. It's a fruit of the Holy Spirit, God. So, Lord, help us to examine our lives day in light of this passage and these three verses. Are we there, Lord? Are there areas that we need to improve in, in our knowledge, in our wisdom, Father, in our testimony and the fruits of the Spirit? Father, so help us. May we be all that we've, we've been called to be, Lord. We thank you for the offering we'll receive today, Lord. Again, we thank you for your blessing. We thank you for how you take care of us, Lord. And God, I pray that you'd be with us through the rest of this day, God. And we pray these things in Jesus, these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. And so